Hello, this is Emlyn and Jada with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to oncologist Dr. Elizabeth Hornkamp. Starting with high school and ending with her current career, Dr. Hornkamp walks us through the decisions she made and how they impacted her journey through college, medical school, and even the Air Force. Okay, so um, I'm Jada, and this is Emlyn. I mean, it's really nice to finally meet you. Uh, So do you just want to go ahead and get started? Sure, absolutely. Since we're in high school right now, we figured we'd kind of start there. Uh, so we're wondering just kind of where you grew up and where you went to high school and what it was like for you. Um, so I grew up in Freehold, New Jersey, central Jersey. You guys probably aren't old enough to be big Bruce Springsteen fans, but it was Bruce Springsteen's hometown. So that was the only specific fancy thing about where I grew up. Um, uh, I went to Catholic high school and uh, in high school I did have an inkling that I wanted to do something medical wise Um, and that probably had a lot to do with the fact that my mom is a nurse um, and actually got her nurse practitioner license while I was still in high school so she was going through a lot of the same things that I would eventually go through at the time when I was starting to think about what I wanted to do and that that surely had a big influence on on what I wanted to do. And so um, what, uh, what year in high school do you think it was that you really decided um, medicine was the path you were going to pursue? Um, you know, I think I probably had an inkling even before high school, again, just because I was exposed to it a lot with my mom in the home, being a nurse and, and getting her schooling. Um, so I, I think I probably even thought about it before high school. I know that she and I talked about um, there being a lot of different paths in medicine. Obviously, you guys are thinking about that as you're doing your podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, my, and my dad's an electrical engineer. So we talked about biomedical engineering. We talked about, she actually um, told me that she didn't want me to be a nurse because she thought I was too bossy. Um, and I would have to be a doctor if I was going to go into be either a nurse or a doctor. So she said I couldn't be a nurse. So that ruled that out right away. Um, and then uh, we talked about like biomedical engineering with that, um, uh, you know, kind of combine both both of what my parents were doing. But I'm, I, I think I'm a people person and I don't think um, designing machines, even if they were eventually going to help people with something that I was going to like all that much. So, um, so Madison is what we talked about. Um, and when I was looking for colleges, I did look for a college that, you know, had a good pre-medicine program. And, and I took, you know, sciences that I was required. My school didn't have a lot of options. So, um, you know, I did well in the science classes and, and, and just went through the regular curriculum. That's really interesting. You had said you went to a Catholic college. Um, would you say this impacted your, like the, any of the classes that you took or any of your opportunities or was it a similar to experience? Uh, you know, so I went to Catholic high school and so did my next younger brother. And then my youngest brother uh, went to a public high school. And my my kids, have I have four children, um, they all went to public high school. Um, 
I don't think it drastically changed what my options were. I do think that my my little brother that went to public high school had a few more options um, when he went through school, just in terms of slightly different things. Like we didn't have um, any woodshop or techie classes or even you know home ec kind of stuff in my school because it was a little bit smaller. And obviously we had more religion than, than he did when he was in high school. So I don't, I don't know that that set me back at all when I got to college, but it's something I noticed. So it sounds like you um, kind of knew pretty early on, like while you were in high school, that you were interested in medicine. And, uh, you know, like, like your mom had said, uh, she was kind of, you kind of had your parents uh, pulling you towards different paths. Um, but individually would you say that you were a good student uh yes yeah I was I was always a I was always a very good student and that was certainly something that I defined myself on early on um even in elementary school I, I was I cared about my schoolwork and I was fairly self-motivated um to to get good grades so it wasn't something they had to stress with me about it and then um Moving from high school uh, to your college experience, I mean, uh, so first off, uh, where did you go to college? And then the second question would be, what do you think the biggest difference uh, was for you between high school and college? Um, so I went to college at a small college near where I live right now in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called Franklin and Marshall College. It was something one of my guidance counselors had recommended um, because I was interested in medicine and they, you know, particularly offered a, a guided kind of pre-med program with a specific pre-med advisor. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's probably gotten even more challenging to go to medical school now. And so I think if you're thinking about that, it is helpful to have that advice. Um, I have had now the experience not only of applying to medical school, but watching one of my children apply to medical school. Um, so I'll tell you that there is a lot of things that if you're going to do it in a, you know, a, a short period of time, that thinking about it early on in college is, is pretty important. Um, um, you know, I think uh, going back to high school just for a minute, one of the other pieces of advice that someone gave us, you know, not when I was in high school, but when my kids were in high school and getting ready to apply to college was to, you know, print out a few college applications when you're a freshman or a sophomore, just to see what kind of questions they ask. Um, and just make sure that as you're going through your high school career, that, um, you know, you're developing some answers to those questions that sound helpful. Um, you know, I think that's what having a pre-med advisor at my college was helpful with you know they made sure that there wasn't any surprises when I was a senior about oh my gosh you had all you know these classes that you didn't think about or these experiences you didn't try to get before you applied to med school so um, I think that was very helpful I, I, I have known in my career lots of people that you know finished college doing something very different than medicine and then eventually went back and have been very successful practitioners um, but if you know that's the direction that you're heading, um, you just hate to get derailed for an extra year or two. It's a very long process. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was just kind of wondering, like, what do you think uh, is the most important thing for um, med schools to incorporate in their teachings? Like, what would what should we look for when we're um, looking at applying to medical school? Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to draw on both my experience as well as, you know, what I've seen my daughter go through now. And um, 
I think that one of the most important things as a physician now that may have been different, you know, even when I was starting to think about medicine was there is too much to know. There's no way that you can know everything that you need to know to take care of a patient. So um, um, teaching people not necessarily how to memorize things, but how to approach things um, and how to continue learning as you go through. Um, again, because I, I think it's just unrealistic of any of us that we can expect that we have everything a patient needs um, when we see them in the office. So, um, you know, listen to how they teach you. Um, and if they're just making you memorize things and they don't have a philosophy about how they're teaching you to learn, um, I think that would be something that would raise a red flag for me. You know, that, that's some really great advice. Um, what would you say, uh, what kind of skills in high school did you carry over to college that helped you to become successful? Um, I was, um, I would say I was really involved in stuff when I was in high school. I was, um, you know, I was in the marching band on the drill team and I was in the track team um, in the spring and I um, had some ex other after school activities. I was in a like explore, med explorer club and I um, actually practiced karate when I was in high school. So um, I, I, I think I learned a lot about time management when I was in high school um, in that, you know, I went from school to practice, to doing my homework, waiting for somebody to pick me up, to have dinner, to go to my karate class and come home and go to bed. Um, and I think that um, things get very busy in college. And if you don't have some kind of, you know, self system about how to um, get your work done and get the other things done, um, it's going to be a very difficult transition to, to college. Um, you know, I, I, Jada had said earlier, you know, kind of what was the biggest difference between high school and college? I think it was that um, I was like, wait a minute, I only have like two hours of classes a day. What am I going to do with the rest of the day? Oh my gosh, I have so much free time. But um, absolutely not. Um, so there was so much more you know, reading that I had to do to, you know, the class was just to go over what I'd already learned myself. And if you don't have a way to kind of structure your time and get things done before you go to college and you're like, oh, I got two hours of class a day, I got all this extra time, um, there's going to be a big problem. <laughs> so um, adding on to Emlyn's question, uh, what skills did you learn in college that helped you be successful that like you hadn't had before? Um, um, so my time management skills got even better. Um, you know, I was, I, you know, I, was, I was thinking about this obviously before I signed on today. And one of the things that I think I didn't expect about being a doctor that I think everybody should expect now is that um, in addition to not knowing everything, I can't do everything that my patients need. And so when I take care of a patient, I'm really just leading a team of people that are helping me take care of a patient. I have a patient care assistant, I have a nurse, I have a social worker, I have a navigator, I have people that are getting things authorized. I have people that are getting things scheduled. And um, in college, I was, um, I was a captain of, a, of, of the track team my junior and senior years. And that was something that I really enjoyed. And I, I was not at all the best person on the team, but I always like to tell my kids I was really good at leading the jumping jacks. And so since I could lead the jumping jacks, like I could kind of get everybody moving in the right direction. And I found that, you know, even though I was not scoring that many points for the team, just getting everybody kind of ready for the meet was a very helpful thing for me to do. And, you know, I find that's true 
every day now as a doctor. I'm, I'm not, I don't know exactly everything that needs to be done, but um, I try to make sure that I'm engaging the other people that are helping me and make sure they understand the importance of what it is that I'm asking them to do for my patient, even if they don't really even get to see the, the patient. It's important that they understand, you know, what their work means towards um, taking care of a patient. Um, so that kind of leadership was helpful. I also lived in a house with seven other women. That was not uh, a sorority that we rented ourselves. And uh, I ended up being there the summer before we moved in when my other um, roommates weren't there yet. And so kind of thought about how to organized so we weren't it wasn't just a complete disaster we actually had a great um house experience i I thought as a junior and senior we lived together and we um, ate together monday through friday monday sunday through thursday and everybody took turns cooking everybody took turns shopping everybody had a cleaning role um that they had to do and you know we had two two big parties a year that we all got together and and organized and um i i really enjoyed that um organizing and kind of getting people moving towards a goal so i think that was something that i i knew a little bit about from high school but i thought i got better at in college and then oh yeah then i went to classes too yeah (laughs) um but um but i'd have to say that so little of what I learned, especially in my pre-med requirements, are things that I think, oh gosh, thank heavens I learned that because I'm using it every day. I should have taken a lot more English classes and sociology classes and psychology classes. Um, you know, my, my daughter, who's in medical school now, uh, is a psychology major, I thought that was genius. Um, because she, you know, a lot of what I do as a physician, at least in my in my job, um, is is have to work with people, um, and so understanding psychology. I didn't take any psychology classes, and I really wish I had. So, um, while you were in college, what was your major, and what would you say were some of your most difficult classes? So, I was a chemistry major in college, um, and that's one of the things that I, I enjoyed it. I actually, you know, it's funny because everybody's like, "Oh my God, you're a chemistry major. That's so hard." Um, I was like, "Thank heavens, I wasn't like." Uh, you know, a major in sociology or something where I had to write papers. Like I found that very difficult. I liked a test and a, and a set of problems to work through. Um, and so I found that a relatively, I, I wouldn't say it was an easy major, but I found it easier to master than, you know, a lot of the pre-med students who were biology majors. That was a lot of memorization and I just really didn't enjoy that. Um, and, um, you know, paper writing, I would have to say that writing a paper was not something that I got probably enough of in high school. And I was very intimidated by that. And so if I had a major where that was the, you know, the focus of all of my classes, I would have found that more difficult. Um, although I think that's unfortunate, because again, I, I think that I maybe would have come out of college a slightly better rounded person, if I felt more comfortable taking um, classes that involved more paper writing and that kind of research. Um, so I majored in chemistry and um, I enjoyed it, but I have to say again, like, it's funny, I've actually seen some of my chemistry professors now that I'm back in the same town that I went to, went to college in. And I'm just like, you wouldn't be proud of, <laughs> of what I remember from being a chemistry major. Um, you know, the, probably some of the hardest classes that I think people have to take to get into medical school 
um, it, you know, is organic chemistry. So, you know, if you talk to about, if you talk to people that are thinking about going to medical school, that's like kind of a hurdle that people have to get over is you have to get through organic chemistry um, because it's a prerequisite. And I think people either like it, like I did, or find it incredibly hard. You know, if I had to take a philosophy course to get into medical school, I'm not sure I would have got into medical school. Um, I think that's unfortunate because I, I don't think organic chemistry thinking defines whether people can be a, a good doctor or not. Um, it, there, it, you know, for some areas of medicine, that is pretty important um, to understand that. I'm not sure that even what I do, giving chemotherapy and such, that you know, a, a, a really thorough understanding of organic chemistry makes me a better or worse doctor. I think you have to have some understanding of it, but um, if, if that's the thing that's gonna make you not go to medical school, I would say just get through it. <laughs> That's a really interesting perspective. Um, before we move on to your medical school experience, uh, I was just wondering how did you prepare for the MCAT and um, what was your experience with that test? Um, you know, it's funny. Again, I, it's interesting. I, I've been thinking about it just because watching my daughter do that. Um, I don't remember that we prepared that much for the MCAT. Um, you know, I took it, I, I took my classes all around the time right before I took the MCATs. Um, and so, you know, I think I must have had a book or something. Um, but I don't remember there being a specific period of time where I took time out to get ready for the MCATs. Um, but my daughter did. Um, and, you know, spent a lot of time studying before that. Because um, I think, unfortunately, now everybody does. And so the scores, you know, have kind of gone. It's just like the the SATs, right? Nobody took SAT courses when I was when I was going to when I was going to college. Like everybody, you have to. All my kids did too. To you know, to kind of get in the right the same bracket as people that do. So. Um, uh, from my daughter's experience, taking some kind of learning experience or taking some weeks out to make sure that you've mastered the skills that you have to have recently enough to, to test on them for the MCATs was pretty important. And I know she took some structured weeks out and had some workbooks from people that had done it before. She didn't take a, a specific course, but you know, used a bunch of online materials plus some study books. And I think she took like six weeks where she was, you know, working part-time as a lifeguard, but spent a lot of her time studying to get ready for those, so. Yeah, so um, I think we're gonna move on to uh, med school now. So um, on your CV, it said that you went to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Um, so what was your um, experience in med school like? And uh, kind of the same question as before, but what was the difference between your undergrad experience and your med school experience? Um. So I think um, that again, there was a lot of self-directed um, stuff that I was glad that I'd already learned time management in college and had a sense of how I learned um, so that I could work on mastering the, the materials. Um, the way that I went to med school, we were in a classroom with a bunch of classes. I actually, I think I had more time in classrooms in med school than I did in college, which was a little strange. Um, and we did a few other things like anatomy and, and um, had some classes where we started physical exam. We, we were, when I went to school, you know, like learning the softer side of being a doctor, talking to patients and, you know, being comfortable with difficult conversations. I think that um, that was just kind of starting to be a thing. So we had, um, <clears throat> 
we had some like seminars on that and, you know, kind of play acting stuff. But I, I think that's a much bigger part of medical curriculum now, which is good um, because that is a lot of what you do as a doctor is having to, you know, interact with people and, and not just handle medical facts, but handle the way people handle medical facts and handle the way you um, teach people about what their diseases are and why you're asking them to do the things that you're doing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad to see that in my daughter's medical school experience, that's been a bigger part of, of what she's doing. Um, there, was, there was a lot of memorizing, which I didn't enjoy. There was no more chemistry problems. Um, it was memorizing drug names and body parts and diseases and different things. So it was a very, um, it was very quick period of time where we had to learn a lot of stuff, some of which I'd heard before, but um, very little of which I'd had in any kind of depth. And we did that for almost two years. Um, and then um, we had a small break and then you start clinical rotations. And that's really when medical school gets fun. Um, so for the last two or two and a half years of medical school, you are actually, you know, have a white coat and scrubs on, you're in the hospital and, um, you know, the most junior member of a team of people that are actually taking care of patients and you're touching people and you're examining people and you're talking to people um, and you're just kind of shadowing what the people that already have an MD do, um, but uh, you know, kind of really getting involved in the work of taking care of people. Although most of that experience is, is um, centered on hospitalized people which is very different than what I do to day to day. You know, even in my medicine training, which maybe we'll get to next, you do a lot of time taking care of people in the hospital and just a little bit of time taking care of people in the office. And I spend, you know, 10% of my time in the hospital now and 90% of my time in the office. So um, there's still, you know, even after medical school and all of my training, there was still a lot of learning to do in terms of how I did that kind of interaction. So, um... Medical school is uh, obviously very time consuming and it requires a lot of attention and um, it's pretty expensive. So uh, what would you say you did to get the most out of your time spent in medical school? Um, so I got a scholarship and that was, <laughs> that ended up being um, a good thing. And it was, um, it was, I, I didn't exactly do it on purpose. I left uh, high school, uh, college with uh, a boyfriend. Um, and he was also going to medical school and he had a scholarship through the Air Force to go to medical school. He had um, family in, that had been in the military. And so for him, I think that was something that didn't seem very foreign to him. I don't have any family that had been in the military. Um, and so what had never crossed my mind that that would be something that I would do. Um, when we ended up going to medical school together, I was just like, wait a minute, that's stupid. If I'm, you know, paying with my parents for my medical school education, and I'm going to end up following. He's now my husband of 30 years. Um, I'm going to end up following you around to Air Force bases, and I will have paid for my education. So I applied and got an Air Force scholarship to medical school. So they paid for the last three years of my medical school education. Um, uh, for uh, my husband uh, David and I, it was a, ended up being a great deal. Um, they paid for everything through medical school and we got a small stipend as well. Um, and then we were, uh, we ended up being active duty military people, me for nine years and him for 11 years after medical school and came out with you know, almost no debt because of that. 
Yeah. So that was a really big deal. Um, for us, it worked out great. Um, we were both in the Air Force. We managed um, kind of our training schedules such that we did not get separated. Um, Air Force comes first, wife comes second. Um, and so we made some, you know, we made some adjustments in the things that we wanted to make sure that we could stay together. Um, but that was, um, that, was, that was a big deal um, for us. Uh, and medical school is incredibly expensive now. I'm hoping that at some time in the future that's going to adjust um, because, you know, there are some doctors that are making plenty to make up for that pretty quickly, but there's not that many anymore. Um, this, you know, to go into medicine because you want to make money is, is, is not going to be a good idea by the time you guys get to medical school age, I think, because um, you're going to finally pay down the debts <laughs> that you incurred by the time you retire if you're going to go into a primary care specialty. Um, unfortunately. Um, so I made sure that I wanted to be there. I think that would be the answer to that question. I was there for a reason. Um, um, I, you know, I, I think there were not a ton of people that I went to college with that were going to college because that's what you did after high school and they didn't really have a goal or motivation to be there. I would say that there were very few people in my medical school class that I felt like were, you know, checking a box um, by coming to medical school. People were there to like learn stuff because this is what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. And people that, you know, went through the first month or two and were like, wow, this really isn't very interesting. We're gone um, after a couple months because it, you know, it, it wasn't what we the time or the money or the aggravation to do it. So. Yeah, about your experience in the Air Force, how did you manage those two? Um, because they both, they both appeared to be really big life experiences, medical school plus residency, of course, and um, being in the branch of the military. Um, you know, it was interesting because that's kind of what we were doing. And since and my husband and I, Dave, were both doing it, it, it didn't seem that odd. Um, you know, they, the military did a pretty good job of kind of integrating. Um, I was wearing a uniform and doing what some other people were doing. So, um, you know, Dave um, had a four-year scholarship. And so the summer before we went to medical school, he didn't have a a job for very long. He had to go to officer training for six weeks um, before we went to medical school. And then between first and second year during the summer, I, you know, I worked only for a short period of time and then went to officer training school between my first and second year. When we were medical students, we were required to do six weeks a year in uniform, um, but doing rotations as medical students. The military has a medical school as well and has a lot of training programs. So I just did what I was doing at medical school but I did it in a uniform. Um, and, you know, the things that were interesting about that that I hadn't expected were that, you know, in addition to being a doctor, I had to learn to be an officer, um, which is a leadership role. And, you know, I, I, I certainly look back on that now. You know, I mentioned to you that I thought being a leader is an important characteristic. And I certainly got more leadership training through medical school and my residency because I was also having to be a, a military officer at the same time. So I think that was actually really helpful. Um, you know, the population that we took care of when I, I uh, when I left medical school, the Air Force took David and I both for residency. So I did all of my training in uniform as well. Um, you're not just taking care of active duty people, you take care of all the retirees as well. 
Um, the area of medicine that I didn't then get exposed to was people that didn't have the ability to pay for care because everything was paid for everyone who we took care of. So that is something that I think I probably still struggle a little bit with more than other people. Um, you know, people would come, would drive to the Air Force Base to get free Tylenol <laughs> when I was when I was a resident. So there really wasn't anybody. You sometimes had to wait a while to get the stuff that you wanted, but there wasn't anybody that didn't have any means to pay for the, or get the things that they needed. Um, like I said, the Air Force didn't generally make it totally convenient for people, but it wasn't like they couldn't they couldn't get it done. Um, and and otherwise, like I was a resident. Um, and uh, like I said, I had to wear a uniform. I had to put my hat on after I got out of my hat and after I got out of my car and salute people walking in and not have anything in my right hand. It took me about three months after taking off the uniform to stop doing that, looking for my hat and shifting everything to my left hand in case I had to salute somebody walking in. Um, but <laughs> uh, there wasn't a lot that was different. We were, I was a staff physician in the Air Force for three years. There was some extra training which was, it was interesting. I had to go out in, the, in our camouflage uniforms and learn about what would happen if we got deployed, which, which we didn't, um, which is different now. I think everybody ends up being a doctor overseas somewhere now if you stay in the military. So um, for us, it ended up being a very good experience. Um, I think when I've talked to young women, especially about that experience, um, I was very fortunate in that my significant other was in the military in the same branch of the military and we were able to kind of coordinate our moves. I think it is uh, challenging if you have a significant other that that maybe is not in the military or in a different branch of the military or has a job that's not really very portable. Um, because I, I, I did know some other women that I trained with, and there was a good number of women in my training program. I didn't feel like it was male heavy at all, um, but uh, the women that had husbands that had jobs that were um, not, you know, if you were a teacher or a, a nurse, jobs more traditionally assigned to women, um, you know, it was pretty easy to get a job wherever you went, but if you were a chemical engineer, um, not necessarily were you going to find a job where the Air Force wanted your significant other to be. And I think that was um, a difficult thing for some people's marriage. So there are a lot of things to think about um, when deciding to do something like that, because you don't get to decide where you're going for all of the time that you're in the Air Force. You have some choices, but um, other, your kind of path isn't your own. So that was actually really interesting because I've been considering um, the option of uh, going through the Navy for um, and becoming a physician mm -hmm. through the Navy. So uh, it was actually really good to hear your experiences um, from the Air Force. Uh, but I think we're going to um, move into your residency, uh, what you said that you did uh, with the Air Force. And um, I noticed that your residency was for um, internal medicine. And so I kind of had a question on what internal medicine was. So my understanding is um, that's kind of general medicine and uh, more geared towards adults, whereas pediatricians are geared towards children. Is that correct? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when we were in medical school, when you um, when you were applying for, so the first year out of medical school, everybody's an intern. That's what they call your first year of training. And there there were only a few um, tracks, uh, internship tracks, that, you, and so you had to decide before you got out of medical school, if you were going to do surgery, um, if you were going to do adult medicine, 
or if you're going to do pediatrics. Those were kind of the three um, you know, general tracks. And then um, from surgery, most people already had, you know, some kind of idea whether they wanted to be a general surgeon and they, you know, are the ones who are doing mostly abdominal operations. You want to be an orthopedic surgeon, bones, a head and neck surgeon, or um, an obstetrician gynecologist. Um, and then pediatrics um, is kind of the same thing as, as medicine, but just for small people. Um, and medicine is things that don't generally involve a knife and people being asleep. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, all the other subspecialties flow out of internal medicine. And I think that that's something that most people had a feeling for by the end of medical school. You know, we had enough experience um, doing things with our hands and figuring out whether we like to talk to people. I thought that was the major um, deciding factor for me. Surgery is very exciting. And when I was a medical student, I thought it was awesome. And it was, you know, just to be in the operating room and to take somebody apart and put them back together again, is just really remarkable. Um, I thankfully had the experience of my husband who is a surgeon. Um, and when we were learning together, I figured out that I had no three-dimensional sense whatsoever. So when he was reading an anatomy textbook, I'm like, wait a minute, you like you understood that? Like, you know where that is? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I figured out I couldn't be a surgeon. And he is a very good surgeon. So that was a good, good break for us. And he really doesn't like talking to people all that much, which is what I do all day. Um, so that wouldn't have been a good, uh, that wouldn't have been a particularly good specialty for him. Um, I really liked pediatrics for a while too. Um, and then I realized that what I needed to do was just to have some children, not to like take care of other people's children. So, <laughs> so um, I started on internal medicine, but when I left, um, when I left medical school, I, I'd never done an oncology rotation. That's what I do now. And I remember distinctly saying to people like, well, that's the only thing I'm not going to do. There's no way I'm going to be a medical oncologist because that would be awful. And that's what I do. Um, so there's still a lot of room for figuring things out, um, you know, after you figure out whether you want to use your hands or use your mind in medical school. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a lot of interests in different specialties. What eventually pushed you to internal medicine and then um, oncology after that? Yeah. So I made the decision at the end of med at the end of medical school that internal medicine was the way to go. I, I wasn't good enough with my hands or my three dimensional sense. I thought to be any kind of uh, surgeon that was reasonable. I think from a lifestyle standpoint, um, that wasn't really what drove me. Um, but I'm I'm thankful now. <laughs> um, surgery is a lot of hurry up and wait and waking up in the middle of the night um, and. Um, I don't think I would have been good at that. Um, and I need more time to make decisions. So medicine is something that's usually more thoughtful um, in terms of you take some information, you think about it and write it down and mix it up and then try to come up with it as opposed to, you know, something's bleeding in front of me and I need to like take care of it right now. I wouldn't be very good at that. Um, and uh, so I went in internal medicine and I thought I would probably specialize, although I wasn't really very sure. I went into internal medicine thinking that I was um, going to really help people be well and do a lot of preventative care. And, and that was, I found, I, I don't like, I don't know if it was a message from God, but all the people that I took care of, like, didn't want to be well, they wanted a pill. Um, and I found that really very distressing. Um, and I didn't feel like I was helping anybody. And I felt like nobody was listening to me. And, um, and then um, I'm oncology patients, 
um, listen to you. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of you have their attention. So I had one particular patient that I actually took care of when I was a Madison resident that really um, kind of turned me on to the taking care of people that are really sick. Um, he actually didn't have cancer. He had terrible congestive heart failure and bad kidney disease and bad lung disease. And he was really a mess when I met him. And um, he, you know, he, he asked me to help him and he looked like he really needed help. And we worked together and I took care of him for about a year and a half and kept him out of the hospital. Um, he wasn't well, but he was better. Um, and I found that extremely gratifying. Um, and I thought, okay, I need to take care of some sick people. And then I did an oncology rotation. I'm like, oh, here they are. <laughs> Here's the really sick people. I should take care of these people. So um, that was what kind of led me into oncology. And, and, and certainly the people that I was around when I was training, um, I liked the oncologist. Um, and when I did rotations there, I felt comfortable with them and that the, and the way that they approached medicine, which was, you know, it's very different between specialties, kind of what you're focusing on. Um, and I thought, oh, yep, that's what I want to do. So um, as, as an oncologist, uh, what, what would you say are your most common cases? Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of uh, commonness of cancers, um, you know, breast cancer is very common, um, given that I'm a woman. And when I joined the practice that I'm in right now is the only woman. Um, and the practice I was in before that, when David was still in the military, I was the only woman. I saw a lot of breast cancer. Um, you know, uh, women tend to like to see women for breast cancer. So that was a large part of, as, of what I've always done. Um, lung cancer, colon cancer are very common problems as, as well. So I think we all see a lot of that. Um, I am in a practice now with uh, 10 uh, oncologists. And given how difficult it is to remember everything that we need to know about all these different kinds of specialties, we've started to try to subspecialize a little bit. Um, and I, so I am now doing mostly breast cancer. And then I also am our practices lead for head and neck cancer, which is a completely different um, area of, of medicine, it feels like, than breast cancer. Um, but again, pretty sick people. So it it satisfies that criteria for me of the people that I like to, that I like to take care of. Um, so, and uh, I have a good friend who's a pediatric oncologist, which I was like, wow, I would really, I would really struggle with that. And she said, yeah, but I cure 85% of my patients. Like, oh, that's, wow, that's cool. I don't. <laughs> um, so I think you really have to be comfortable if you go into oncology to save people's lives. Um, you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time, at least right now. Um, I'm hoping that that will change sometime in the next decade or two, that oncology will be something like pediatric oncology where we're curing a lot of our patients. But right now we're doing a lot of, you know, a really palliative care, trying to improve the quality of people's life for whatever time they get left, sometimes by beating back their cancer with different medicines and sometimes just by managing their symptoms better. As a head and neck cancer specialist, um, what are some skills do you think, like what are some skills you think are important to learn before uh, going into this specialty and um, especially taking on those types of challenges? Yeah, um, again, I, I think you have to be um, ready to really talk to people and understand what 
is concerning them. I think you also, um, we ask people to do some very difficult things to try to cure them of their cancer, you know, chemotherapy and radiation. Um, I think if you just say to people, okay, you just need to do this, and I'm not going to tell you why, like it's, it's not, why would they do this to themselves? Um, because, uh, you know, people can get very sick from the treatments that I'm offering. So I think as an oncologist, it's very important to be able to talk to people. I think it's very important to be able to listen to people um, and understand what it is that they're trying to tell you that they want or that they need or that they're worried about. And, um, and, and keep that in mind when you're designing a treatment plan. Um, I think you also have to be able to, um, you know, um, color within the lines in terms of understanding, you know, what's indicated and, and what's not, and being able to, you know, to say to people, listen, I, I, I would like to, I would like to help you, and I can make something up, but um, I, I'm not sure it's going to help you um, because, you know, there's no data to support doing that, um, and you have to be able to, you know, to put that out there and, and, and try to think about those kind of things, too. So um, my brother is actually uh, a cancer survivor, and oh. we spent quite a lot of time around uh, pediatric oncologists, at mm -hmm. least. And I was wondering, what do you think um, is like a defining trait or characteristic that separates uh, the good oncologists from the great oncologist or the excellent ones? Oh, wow. Um, so I think that... Um, you know, when I've, uh, so I, I, I'm the magic physician for my practice now. And so I am involved in interviewing uh, oncologists to join my practice. And so that is something that I think about. Um, I think people that try to, in an interview, just convince me that they're smart. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, that, that's like that. That's the ticket. That's the admission ticket, right? Like you can't not be smart and, and get through this. That's not what I want to hear about. I, I want to hear about, um, are you able to listen to people um, and understand what their goals are? Um, in addition to being smart enough to under, you know, to then take their goals and make a treatment plan out of them. Um, I also think that, um, again, you have to be able to um, work in a team environment because if you think that you're gonna be able to provide everything that your patient needs, you're, you're not. Um, so, um, you know, being able to delegate because we're also actually being taken care of a lot of people, you know, and if I try to do everything for each one of my patients, I would, I would never sleep. Um, so um, I think those are probably the things that I, I think define an excellent oncologist. They have to be smart because I think all of us are. Um, I think they have to be able to understand what people are telling them um, in terms of their goals. And, and even, you know, especially older people won't tell you that unless you ask them. They're trained to like do whatever the doctor says, no matter whether they think it's a terrible idea or not. Um, and you have to be able to get the people around you to help you if you're really going to do the most for a patient. Thank you for that. And um, I know research plays a really big part of, uh, you know, I, I know some people in college use it to get into medical school. And of course, it's just so crucial for advancing our knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. Have you been a part of any research? And if so, uh, what was the research over? 
Um, that's a great question. I think that is, um, you're right, it's absolutely imperative to move science forward that we're doing research. Um, I think that, um, coming out of medical school and starting to think about my career, I, um, I, I didn't want to work in a lab and I, I don't think I have the temperament for research um, to that. I, I like the immediate gratification of working with a patient and making things better. I did do three months of, you know, kind of lab bench research as a, um, as a uh, resident, I know, sorry, an oncology fellow. Um, where, you know, we worked with different cells and exposed them to things. And um, the lab that I was working on in at University of San Antonio, University of Texas, San Antonio, was working on insulin-like growth, insulin -like growth factor receptors on breast cancer cells. And, um, you know, in three months that I was there, I did a lot of things and shifted a lot of cells around. Um, and I think that that work has resulted in some, you know, eventual stuff happening with looking at how we treat breast cancer but um i was like wow three months and i you know nobody got better <laughs> um I, I found it challenging so i think that there are I, I have a great admiration for the people that i work with at university of pennsylvania that are involved in designing clinical trials and thinking about you know things down to the receptor level and working in a lab with cells and discovering things I, um, I don't think that was that, that that's a different kind of doctor than the doctor that I wanted to be. Um, and I think it is one of the things that people think about when they're in medical school. Um, you know, you, you have to know something about patients and you have to see some patients. But if you want to do academic medicine and, you know, my colleagues at we're a part of University of Pennsylvania now, my colleagues at University of Pennsylvania, they are um, not seeing clinic every day. They're doing a lot of uh, clinical trials work, thinking about how to design clinical trials better, how to enroll people in clinical trials, looking at data, um, and uh, a lot of their time where that is not, uh, you know, I, I listen to the results of clinical trials and other people have done to try to use those to treat my patients better, um, but I don't think I would be very good at designing a clinical trial. And just um, one more statement about research. If you were given, let's say, thousands of dollars to fund research, um, what kind of research would it be? Hmm. So, you know, the things that I think about every day um, are um, delivering care uh, to people in, in a better way. Um, and I think that the things that I would think about and the things that I am thinking about within my center is um, um, healthcare disparities and having, you know, I can deliver the same treatment to five different people and have different things happen to them. Some of that's because of uh, their inherent differences and the way maybe they metabolize medicines. But, um, I think I've increasingly realized that a lot of it has to do with the care that is completely out of my hands. You know, are they in an environment where they have enough food? Are they warm? Um, are they safe? Do they have support from their loved ones? Um, that's um, something that a lot of people are looking at right now um, because it does make such a big difference in the outcome of a lot of medical care. Um, but I don't think that how we 
There's a lot of papers. If you look at healthcare disparities and outcomes, there's a lot of papers about that why they're there. There's not a lot of papers about how to overcome them. Um, you know, how do you help people to, um, despite their circumstances, still do well with medical care? So if I had a lot of money to work on that, I would probably try to figure out programs that would help people um, change their life circumstances such that they would have a better result from treatments um, that other people smarter than me were designing for them to do. <laughs> So um, I think our final question here is um, just what is the day um, in the life of an oncologist like? Can you just kind of walk us through uh, what you do every day? Okay. Um, so I get up really early. I exercise every day before I go to work or else I can't sit still and I'm a miserable person. So that's important to me. I eat a good breakfast because everybody should. Um, and then um, I see patients from, on, so I'm the managing physician now. So I have an admin role as well as a, a clinical role. So I see patients starting at eight o'clock. I see a patient every 20 minutes. Um, I have a break for lunch some, um, and I finish at five o'clock. During the course of that time, I, like I said, I see a patient about every 20 minutes. In between that, I'm making phone calls, I'm looking things up. If a patient has results that were things that I wasn't expecting, I stay at work usually for about another hour to finish charting on the things that I've done that day. And I, then I look at, before I go home, I look ahead to my next day's clinic to make sure that if somebody is coming in and I don't have a good handle on what it is I need to do for them that I look it up the day before. Um, and then um, I usually do some more work before I go to bed. Um, again, getting ready for the next day's patients to make sure I know what, um, what they're what, what's coming up and what I need to do for them the next day. I do two days of administrative work where I work with um, the, you know, the, the heads of my center to try to make sure that the care we're delivering is consistent and everybody has what they need to take care of patients and um, listening to, to ways that we might be able to make things better in the future. So that's, I, and we all work four days a week, which is very nice. I'm very privileged to be able to do that. Um, so I have two days where I do admin and two days where I see patients from eight to five. And then once every couple of weeks, I am the hospital doctor where I am on call from eight o'clock Monday morning until eight o'clock Friday morning, seeing all the patients in the hospital and taking care of people after hours if they run into a problem um, when our clinic's no longer open, they call and, and, and wake me up and ask me questions. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hornkamp, for your time and input. Um, your perspectives and experiences have been really interesting, and it was really great to learn from you. So we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. If you haven't already listened to the last episode with antepartum nurse Kathy Lee, set aside some time to check that out. If you look forward to hearing when our next episode drops, click the subscribe button. We'd also like to give a shout out to Kat for designing our cover art. If you like the art, check out her animations by following Kat Productions Animation on Instagram. And be sure to follow our social media by going to Instagram and following Stories Behind the Scrubs.